When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, but what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they were filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up to you, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is God's word. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. We bow our hearts before you, creator and king. Open our eyes to the reality of who you are by the power of your spirit. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because in heaven all creatures worship you. All life drinks deeply from your living water. We would flourish if we did so as well. We long for the day when we see you face to face, but now we look through this clouded mirror of our perception. Give us a taste of your kingdom that is to come. Many of us feel the needs for food and clothing, and you say give us that we should pray, give us this day our daily bread but we feel as if we need to find these things ourselves, our time and our rest and our provision. But you are the bread of life. You are the rest our souls long for. So teach us to rest in you. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors because your spirit not only opens our eyes to see you, but also to see the truth about ourselves. You convict us. Forgive us of the sins that you reveal within us and humble us so that we can forgive others. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Show us what is right and true. 
as opposed to the lies of the enemy so prevalent in the world, the lies that appeal to us all. Deliver us by your power and by your grace, for to you is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, um, a while back, I had a dream, and I am not the, uh, if you know me, I grew up in sort of more Pentecostal and expressive churches, and it wasn't so much my bent, uh, and those experiences sometimes felt a little bit foreign to me, like I was kind of observing something that I wasn't as connected to, Um, and so these aren't my normal experiences. But a while back, I had a dream about a guy I knew uh, when he was young. I actually met him when he was five years old, and I was in my first uh, church, church job. Actually, I wasn't in the job yet. I was just going to that church when I was younger. And I woke up in the night very, very quickly, and I was concerned because in my dream, he was in trouble. And there were, like, specifics. He was in, like, a, an apartment, um, and he had a dog. And there were all these things, but, but he was in trouble, and he was afraid, and he was scared. And I woke up in the middle of the night, and I just was like, what's going on with him? I hadn't thought about him in a while. I haven't seen him in years. And I just stopped and prayed for him to be safe and for God to be with him and for him to know Jesus and whatever else I could think of. And not, not long after that, within the next couple of weeks, uh, I got the first phone call I'd gotten from him in years. And he had actually been in trouble. Um, and it didn't match exactly like the scenery of that room that I saw, because he was actually in prison. Um, But he had had a a terrible thing come up, and he had responded poorly, and he got arrested, and he was terrified. And he had been praying again, he said. And uh, and it seemed like right about that time is when I woke up uh, with this dream. And and now we've been reconnected. We actually talked this week. We check in on each other and text each other, and I got to invite him to a church. He lives in Phoenix. Um, and, and try to get him connected, and God's at work. Now, who woke me up? You know, that's the question, right? Do I, have, do I have this amazing intuition? You know, not all my dreams are worth acting on. I've also been awakened in the night, as my family can attest, by the, the feeling that someone is at, like, is about to kill me and my family, and I wake up trying to yell and stop them, but the yelling comes out very, very weird. Um, it comes out like, and then I wake myself up, and I'm like, I, what, why? And Michaela is terrified. So not every single one of my dreams is uh, trustworthy, if you will, right? Now, here's another scenario. Last week, uh, or last year, sorry, we were working on this grant that, that's still in the mix, and we've talked to some of you about it and, uh, and announced it here. We're trying to get more trees on the street for the neighborhood. Um, and I was given a template uh, to make a presentation before some people in the city and some other community leaders, because we were all in a kind of a green space infrastructure program, learning about how to um, apply for these grants and make proposals. And there was a page within that grant process that said, what is your motivation? And I got to that page, and this is not a hard thing to do. I mean, it's pretty easy to to imagine what you might put on a page like that. Like, I want to, our motivation is to save water or to capture water that's run off and create more shade or create potentially like uh, edible plant life so that the community can engage with that. And that would all be true. 
But when I hit that page, I felt something of a, of a con- I was conflicted or perhaps even convicted that this was a chance to talk about the deeper motivations that I had as a Christian. And the truth is, I felt very nervous to do that because I was in a space with people who weren't, weren't Christians. And I thought, this could come across weird. This could kind of insert weirdness into this conversation. But I felt like an, an intense, I need to do this. I need to deal with this. I need to think about this. And I, I didn't have a lot of time. I was working on a presentation that I had to give later in the day. And so I just thought, I thought what could I do? I, I kind of prayed and said, God, okay, what, am I, what should I say? And I had this little thought where I was like, you know what? I saw Ken Burns National Parks a while back, and there was that song this is my father's world, that if you, if you have church background, you hear the instrumental of that underneath a whole, uh, a lot of that show, and especially the scenes about John Muir, because he grew up as a Presbyterian, and there's this song, and I googled the lyrics that I kind of knew, and I was like, ooh, those are really rich, maybe I'll share some of that and some thoughts, and so I put a picture of a national park in there, and, and I had to go into the presentation not too long after, and so... I get to the motivation page, and I said, have, have any of you seen Ken Burns National Parks? And I got a whole bunch of head nods. I was like, oh, okay, we're going in the right direction. And I told them a little story about the guy who wrote it, a pastor in upstate New York who had, would walk, take walks and write poetry, and he would walk out in the, the beautiful world, and he wrote this poem. Um, and after he died, his wife shared the poem, and a friend of his put it together with a, a an instrumental piece called Terra Beata, which means beautiful world. And it goes like this. This is my father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas, his hand the wonders wrought. This is my father's world. The birds their carols raise. The morning light, the lily white, declare the maker's praise. This is my father's world. He shines in all that's fair. In the rustling grass, I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. And this writer lived through the Civil War, by the way. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. And I read it to him, and I said, you know, we as Christians believe the world is, isn't, um, we believe it's a gift. We believe it's, it was created and given. Um, the wrong in the world uh, taints this creation and this experience. And so we believe that it's part of our task to take care of all the good gifts that God has given, push back evil, and uh, seek to let the earth be glad. So I just put that out there, right? Um, and... I went on in the presentation and talked about curb cuts and rainwater and so on. And at the end, people could ask you questions. And one of the, one of the ladies, a leader in our community here, uh, took the time to get, she just said, hey, I just wanted to say, I, I, that was really moving and, and thank you for talking about your motivation more. I really appreciate that. And actually invited me to, uh, to come out to an event that they were doing. Now, Where'd that idea come from? You know, and am I just an incredible strategist? How did I know how many of them would have watched Ken Burns National Parks, right? And 
I think, I believe, the Holy Spirit was active in both of those scenarios and a lot of others. I think that the Spirit of God was actively doing something, and I don't know the end result of what that was. So do you ever wonder um, about this? When and how does the spiritual world kind of collide and enter into our reality, our lived reality? Do you ever think about that? Um, When is something coming from a place of spiritual truth or goodness when is something coming from a place of spiritual darkness, right? Um, Christian, do you ever wonder when the inklings you feel are coming from God? Or when they're just because you ate um, the Nico's chorizo burrito, which will wake you up in the night? Um, or, or when is it coming from your fears? Like, I can tell you those dreams I have, um, I have this, this fear that if someone, you know, were, were attacking or something like that, that I wouldn't know what to do. The dreams seem to follow that, that fear. Are these, are these things coming from our fears? Or worse, from our own selfish ambition or something that we want to hear? I was thinking recently about, um, we have a, an old Model A that was my dad's and I haven't had time to work on it. And he said he'd hoped I'd keep it. But then I, I was like, maybe I should sell it. And I could, I could get to the place where I'd imagine my dad putting his hand on my shoulder and saying, it's okay to sell. But is that just what I want to hear, right? Like, hmm. We need a foundational belief to guide us um, when it comes to the Holy Spirit because all of these things come into play for us. Um, and, and as Christians, I think this is interesting. And if you're just kind of feeling out faith, I actually think people think about this a lot in general. So, the three little things I want to cover here, little things about a giant topic that I'm hardly going to cover well, and I apologize, but seeing the Spirit, discerning the Spirit, and operating in the Spirit. Um, so, let's, uh, let's just move through them. Seeing the Spirit. As Christians, there, there are beliefs we have. We started this series uh, just by talking about the idea that we believe that God has revealed himself to people. This is a key foundational part of Christian belief, is that God is not just distant and kind of hoping we figure things out, but that God is active and present and actually giving us information. So in that information that God has given us, which some of it comes from creation and some from the Bible, we see that the Holy Spirit is real, um, active, and specifically the Spirit of God. So I read you the the passage I did to open up this time to show you that God is there at creation, Um, that he's he's there when the earth is formless and void. He's there at the very beginning. Uh, The Apostle Paul explains in 2 Corinthians to to a church, a new church in Corinth, that when he had come to them, he didn't come with lofty speech or wisdom, but with a message about Jesus Christ and him crucified And he came in weakness and trembling, but it was a demonstration, he said, of the Holy Spirit. Because these people believed in a very difficult-to-believe message coming through kind of a weak and trembling voice. But then he goes on to say, among the mature, we impart wisdom, a wisdom that was hidden with God before the ages. And how does he claim that we can do that? Paul says, again, this is by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to read a little bit here from 1 Corinthians 2. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought? 
thoughts, sorry, except the spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now, that means a lot of things, but it, it means the spirit is the power of God working and interpreting and teaching. For those of you who would say, yeah, I, I, believe, I believe in God, I believe these things, do you ever wonder why you believe in God? Have you ever thought about, have you ever like kind of surveyed, I've done this, I grew up in some churches, I grew up in Christian school, and I look back and I see there's a number of people that had very similar life experiences than, you know, or similar to mine. Some of them had families that were way more like dedicated to the faith than mine was, and I see some of them ended up believing it and some of them don't. You know, and I go, why do I? Have you ever asked that? And, and when you think about that, um, it's, it's tempting to go, because well, I found the truth. You know. But are these people really more dumb than you, you know? Are you like the, the pinnacle of, I mean, did you, is that really what it is? The Bible, um, sorry to inform, teaches it's not because we're smart nor rational. It's not because we've found all the best answers that the reason that we believe is because the Spirit of God is at work. So just as in creation, the Spirit of God is there in the formation and creation of our faith. <clears throat> Excuse me. In the creation of our faith, God is there making it happen, making it possible. And that's why becoming a Christian is called a new birth. You've heard the phrase born-again Christian, right? Really unhelpful when it comes to polling. But the idea is the Christian has been recreated, that God has entered in and started something new that they could never start themselves, right? So the, the Holy Spirit is the power of God working. The Holy Spirit is also one with God, just as your spirit is one with you or part of you. Uh, have you ever thought about something like this? Your spiritual thoughts are connected to your entire body. This is why when I have a fear, I wake up in the night yelling. Like, I, my body responds out of my spiritual thoughts. It's a, the connection is incredible. Your spiritual, and, uh, spiritual actions and thoughts and ideas impact you, your bodily experience of life, and the lives of those in relationship to you. Have you ever thought about that? You're, the things you fear, the things you're, you might be anxious about, the things you're very joyful about, they, they actually bodily impact you and they bodily impact others. That's because your spirit is part of you. The spirit of God is one with God. And, and if this is true of created people, how much more it must be true of God? And in our, in our text this evening, you see this spirit who is one with God, who is also the power of God. In, in the text that Josh read to us, you see the Spirit is intervening in a, in a very real situation, transforming the beliefs of thousands of people. It's an incredible moment that the Spirit of God works and speaks and transforms the beliefs of thousands of people through 
the speaking in tongues that we read about, and we'll get a little more into that, but also through the words of Peter. People's hearts and minds and their whole trajectory of their lives are changed in this moment. And now the incredible thing, think about this, it occurs um, through these languages. And you have to understand that, that this was a feast day called Pentecost. It was a feast day of the harvest when they gathered in all of the harvest and people would feast on the harvest together. They would gather together and all of the grain was harvested in and they would thank God for the harvest. Now this is a spiritual gathering and it's, it's no mistake that it happened on the day of Pentecost. Tongues here means languages. People heard them. It says praising God and explaining the good news of Jesus in their language. And that's amazing. That is an amazing idea. It, it, I don't know how that works, right? But what's even more amazing to me than that, that often gets overlooked, is that all these people, it says thousands of them, not only heard that, but believed it. I mean, think about that. They heard uh, this explanation that Jesus had come and had been killed and had risen from the dead, and they heard it. It's like, you know, me going, I don't know, I could go down to deep Mexico, and there's a tribal language, and someone who appears to not know English says to me, um, Jesus died, uh, and it was partly your fault, and then he rose from the dead. And that would be crazy. I'd be like, how'd you just do that? But then to then go from there to also going, you're right. I believe this. I will give my life to it. That's incredible. It's incredible. But the the way that that happened is that the Spirit of God worked in their historical context and through their actual languages. The Spirit of God wasn't detached from human experience, bodily experience. The Spirit of God knew it was their, their feast day, the day of Pentecost, and did a meaningful thing in the middle of their historical context that they could see and comprehend and understand, and then spoke to them in their languages. That's amazing. It's an incredible exhibit that shows us that the spiritual world, God's spirit, isn't just distant and ethereal. It is aware of our religious and cultural history and interacts with us meaningfully. It knows that the spirit of God knows our language. It knows us personally, intimately, corporately. The Spirit knows your language. And this, and, and you know, not just, not just knows our language, but can speak into it with power, can engage in it with power. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that makes me think, if God can do that, maybe the reason I had that thought about sharing the Ken Burns song that that wasn't just my idea. Maybe the Spirit knew the group I was talking to, that they had seen the National Park stuff and just made a connection that I could never make. And of course, being so intimately involved in our lives, so personal, the Bible also says that we can grieve and resist the Holy Spirit. Stephen, the first first deacon in the Bible, gives a speech right before he is stoned to death. And the thing he says that just drives people crazy, and he says it to the religious people, the the people of the church of the day, but he said to them, you have always been resisting the Holy Spirit. And he showed them that through the history of the people of God. In Ephesians 4, Paul teaches we can grieve the Holy Spirit. 
He explains what Christians should do and not do with the grace that they've been given in Jesus and the things that they should do. They should be humble, gentle, patient. They should be unified in one body. They should speak the truth in love. They should be maturing, putting on a new self in God's likeness, sharing with others, talking in ways that build up others, being kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving as Christ has forgiven us. And then he says, Whenever you do the opposite of those things, you grieve. In verse 30, he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And when you do those things, it grieves you. This is a personal God who's involved. And when you are not you know, taking his promptings and hearing his word and, and responding, it grieves him. So look, I know that's not the exhaustive um, work on the Spirit of God. But I want you to see that this, this is God, this is the power of God at work in our lives, and it's very personal. It is God personally who we engage with when we engage with the Holy Spirit. Now, discerning the Spirit, this is where I tend to get the most questions as a pastor, and I, and I would assume that this is where a lot of your questions are now. I get questions like, how do I know when I'm... When I'm hearing the Holy Spirit? When, how do I know that what I'm feeling or sensing is the Holy Spirit or if it's something else? And those are great questions. I think that's what I want to lean into that for a little bit here. And there are a few options. So say you have, um, you have a sense. I should do this. There are a few options. You might be being guided by God. The, the, the Bible lays that out as a very solid option. This may be God being involved, showing you something. But you may be sensing your own personal desires or the opinion of someone else that is very strong. That's possible. Or the third and probably the hardest one for us to grapple with, you may be being influenced by evil. I'm going to look at those in reverse. So yes, I am saying there are evil spirits in the year 2022. Um, here I am saying that's real. Um, look, here's, I'm not going to get into the whole bit of this, but here's, here's a line of thought. I have um, several times sat with people with severe mental illness, um, and, and a number of those times I've heard them speak directly um, about God with very lucid and clear feelings of either fear or hatred or absolutely renouncing allegiance to God. And one of these people was in an institution um, and just articulated to me so clearly. It was like, I know who Jesus is, he said, and I, but I will not be serving him. I serve Satan, and I do whatever he tells me to do. I was like, whoa. That was clear, okay? And in an institution, so we can go, okay, I'm mentally ill. Okay. Here's the question. Why is it, though, that when someone says, um, you know, I just feel really connected to the universe, I just feel like I'm in this deep sense of, like, of, of peace, and I, I feel connected, we hear that and we go, ah, this is a person getting in touch with their spiritual side. But when someone says, I renounce Jesus Christ and serve the devil, we say, ah, crazy. We're very inconsistent on this. I'm talking culturally. I'm not just talking as the church. I think both. We're inconsistent on this. When it sounds bad or weird, 
crazy when it's generally positive and it works toward the, you know, goals of good people. Cool. But those are both spiritually decisive statements. Um, what I'm saying is there are spiritual allegiances, and some of them we just, we just don't point them out as being as crazy because they seem to help. But there are, and, and some people are intentionally engaging with, with spirits of, of darkness. Um, that, that happens. The Bible says it happens. People will tell you they're doing it if you ask enough questions. But also, and more typically, evil comes under a cloak, um, like the wolf in sheep's clothing. And that's probably the hardest to discern. And that's how the Bible often presents it. In Genesis, right, the great temptation of the serpent um, is exactly what it is. It's so tempting because it sounds really great. It's casting doubt on what God has really said, um, offering to humanity something that they really want, and it's all just kind of under the guise of, like, you won't surely die. Like, it's God, God isn't trustworthy in what he says, right? Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, there's several things like eat bread, uh, ascend to power, test God, see if he'll really save your life. I mean, these aren't crazy. This isn't like demon stuff. You know, Jesus wasn't there with a guy with big horns in front of him going like, eat the bread, you know? It wasn't. It was cloaked. It felt, felt really normal, probably like most of the temptations that you and I feel. Judas's temptation when, you know, when he betrays Jesus, goes down in history as one of the, the worst men in the world. But, you know, he wasn't so sure Jesus was actually going to turn out to be anything. Things were really going sideways on him, and he had a chance to get some money. How many of us, if faced with that scenario, would have done the same thing, right? The Antichrist of the apocalypse at the end of the Bible. This Here's a figure that terrifies, right, at the end of the Bible. It says that he is, is so appealing... And, and elsewhere, John says there are many antichrists, so don't, don't, it doesn't have to be in your head like, who is it necessarily? Like, but that this antichrist figure is so appealing that if it were possible, even God's chosen people would be led astray by this person. So what does that mean? That means the temptation often comes cloaked as exactly what we want to hear, right? So like, be careful of people that say what you want to hear. <laughs> it's sort of what it, watch out for that. Um, you may hear or sense or study something that sounds very right, be appealing to your sensibilities, and it may be actually evil. C.S. Lewis, uh, Abby has her book, uh, Screwtape Letters, I think. You want to share, everybody? No, don't. You don't have to. Um, but this, yeah, this is a book. I, I told Abby, the, the great irony of the, the book Screwtape Letters in my life is my first copy of it, I stole. Um, yeah, I don't know if I've admitted that in front of you all. I've told several of you. Um, the person was dead who owned it. Um, it was in their shed. The shed had been broken into, and I peeked in, and there were books, and there was the Screwtape Letter. But it wasn't my book. I did still steal the book. Um, in my younger days, which Abby is just rolling her eyes like, wow, my father, what a role model. But, 
But in, in that book, which I letter, later read and was like, oh, perhaps I've been tempted myself. Um, but the, the whole thing that Lewis is getting at is he's showing the normal, the normal side of the temptations. He talks about one of the most memorable parts in there is the Christian who, because um, it's, a, it's a senior demon uh, training a younger demon is the, the fictional scenario in the book. And the guy becomes a Christian and the senior demon says, this isn't a huge deal, no problem. Here's two great strategies you can do. Um, get him to just read all the terrible things going on in the newspaper and start to turn against his neighbor and get him to look around the church at the hypocrisy of all the people and to get frustrated with them. Uh, how dead on was C.S. Lewis in exactly the way that evil creeps in, right? Just substitute YouTube for newspaper now. See, you get it? Yeah, <laughs> see it now? It's, that's how it works. Temptation is often cloaked. Um, so, so be aware. Now, the second way that this happens, um, that, that we could sense our, our, our own or others' opinions, okay? The second is related to, th- to the third, but we're, we're quite capable of desiring what is evil. The, the Bible says this in Jeremiah 17, and it alludes to it everywhere else. The heart is deceptive. It is sick, and who can understand it? Which means that just because you and I have a deep sense or desire for something doesn't mean that it's good. Um, we need to be careful. This, um, this is very nuanced, but here's a, sort of maybe what it gets at is when Jesus warns in one of his parables that the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke out God's word. And so sometimes we can deeply sense or desire something. It could be It could be things that would just lead to like a good life, wealth, health, security. Um, And it may not be of God. It just may be of us. And it could actually choke out what God's doing in our lives. Um, I heard something recently from Louis Giglio, pastor of a big church in Atlanta. And I actually haven't followed too much of his stuff recently. But I, I heard a podcast where he said something interesting. I think it could relate to some of us where he said he was... He was trying to figure out what to do next in his life. He was curious about being a pastor versus uh, doing campus work. And somebody who he, he really trusted, a godly mentor, said, oh, he's never going to be a pastor. Definitely not. And just categorically sort of stated this. And he was plagued by this because he was like, oh, no, I thought maybe I should be. And for the longest time, it, took, it was hard for him to step outside of maybe that person was just sharing an opinion. And Imagine how much more weight gets added to that when somebody says, God said, don't do that. Now, for for some of us, no problem. You go, yeah, 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 I don't care. For some of us, that would hold immense and terrible weight. If, If anybody, let alone somebody in like leadership like myself said, God said, don't do this, that would hold huge weight. And here's the thing. How do you test if it was God? How do you do it? Um, Michaela, you know, as maybe shared with some of you, or I've mentioned that she had a couple of good friends. They're, they're both Christians, both older, um, older lady Christians, just total equal. And one of them said, marry Andy, and one of them said, don't. It worked because it was a total stalemate. So now you can just go, well, throw them both out and go on to the next opinion. But what do you do, right? Like, what do you do when the godly person says do and the other one says don't? Ah, it's difficult. So 
we need to be careful. It can just be, it can be other people's opinions. So the Bible clearly teaches that God does lead his people, but in some very specific ways. Um, one piece I want to put out there is it's going to be for God's reasons and not just ours. Um, there's an interesting example um, of Paul feeling that the Holy Spirit was not leading him into Asia, and then he had a dream, and it led him to Macedonia, but there was this whole complicated path to get there, and it looks like if you just looked at things, it looked like a massive waste of time, and he didn't just go straight to the place he should have gone, and why wouldn't God want him to go to Asia? And the Bible doesn't really clear all that up, but it definitely shows us that God does not operate like a travel or career or vacation planner. Um, that, so if when we want God to kind of come in and go, hey, my revealed will for you is that you graduate from this college and get this job and then go here and then do this and start your family at age 27, boom, boom, boom. I hear laughing. This is a good sign. People think this way. So that, that's not how God tends to work. God is a, about deep and spiritual agendas that, that we aren't necessarily clued in on. And he's getting at things that, that we're not necessarily going to understand. For me, I had one of those kind of Paul Macedonia moments years back. I was trying to discern if I was supposed to take a job. I fasted and prayed because we all know that's the most legit version when you pray and don't eat. Like, it actually is a very valuable spiritual practice. But, but I did a really dumb edition of it um, where I hiked Picacho Peak um, mid-fast. And I'm just going to tell you, um, that's a bad idea. That could have, I could have fallen right off a cliff. Um, so I did all that spiritual work, right? And I, and I felt a deep sense that I should take the job that was being offered to me, okay? So I got down the hill, took the job, and they called me back and said, actually, we don't have any money, so we can't hire you. And, and I remember feeling what I've heard from many other people going, why did you even put me through this, God? Like, what, what, a, I did all the things, you know? I fasted and hiked, you know? Like, how do you not honor that? Um, anyway, I, I, it took me a whole total different meandering direction that, and there, I mean, I, I would have to spend hours telling you about all the things that happened because that didn't happen. Um, but all I know is that I can look back and see very shaping times in that period where God was doing things, and I don't know what the alternatives would have been, but I see that God worked through that time. And I'm really glad for the meandering path, okay? So God may lead, but not like a vacation or career planner. More like that good parent who sees the big picture and lets you take little steps and engage in actual failures so that you end up getting somewhere good. Um, second, um, the Spirit of God is indeed God and will therefore not be calling you to do something that's disobedient or inconsistent with the law of God or out of step with the character of God. A simple way of saying that, um, the Spirit will not be calling you to do something the Bible says is wrong or that doesn't like fit in God's plan as revealed in the Bible. An interesting thing you see in this text from Acts is Peter, one of the ways that he helps the people understand what's going on is he points back to an ancient book that's like five to 700 years old, the book of Joel. And he says, look, God told us this was going to happen. 
and he shows it exhibited in the book of Joel. He said, this is a fulfillment of what was, we were told was going to happen. And then he explains to them how Jesus is the fulfillment of that. That's important because God has not changed between the days of creation and the times of the book of Joel and the times of the book of Acts and our day. It's the same God. Years, years back, I was given a book through somebody in the church. Um, and this lady, it was a wild book. The lady claimed that God had told her to marry uh, the pastor of her church who happened to be married. Um, and she tried to do that. And it all fell apart, and it was a mess. But she got to the end and concluded, um, I hear from God and nobody else does, was kind of the conclusion of the book. And it was a wild ride. Um, but I can categorically tell you, this is the nice thing about this, this idea, I can categorically tell you she was not hearing from God. I can't. Why? Because God has never suggested that you should marry someone else's spouse. Ever. It's wrong in the law, it's wrong in the prophets, it's wrong in the New Testament under Jesus. It's consistent. Now, that doesn't mean there's no redemption if you've committed adultery. There is. But it does mean it wasn't the Holy Spirit inspiring you to do it. Right? And if you feel that desire in your heart, this is not a spirit desire, it is yours. You can discern that by looking at who God is and who he's revealed himself to be. Um, That's an extreme case, but it leads to the third consideration, the Bible clearly spells out what the natural produce of the Spirit of God in your life will be. It's called, we call it the fruit of the Spirit. Um, And that's simply to say, um, the way that that Paul is trying to explain this is, Jesus had said, a good tree bears good fruit, a bad tree bears bad fruit. You know if a tree is good by the produce it produces. And Paul is like building on that and says, here's what you should expect to see from the Spirit of God. So here it is, Galatians 5. I say to you, walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, or you could say the misguided desires of the heart. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing what you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, he says, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you um, that those who do such things, and and this word means habitually, not slip, will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. That last line means that Paul is talking to people especially who were provoking and envying, and he was showing them this is not in step with the Spirit, but he gave us a lot more to look at, which means we can discern what we're feeling against this fruit of the Spirit. Any sense of call, any, any inclination we have should be examined under this. Is this loving toward the other people involved? Is this a fruit of joy? Does this promote peace? Is this a product of patience? Is this kind? Is this gentle? Am I in control of myself or am I reacting? You can... You can look at this stuff and see if you're being guided by the Holy Spirit. 
In the case of something like love, you have even more spiritual tools. Paul, um, in his book to, to the Corinthians, his first book, describes love incredibly. And interestingly, it's in the context of explaining other things that are attributed to the Holy Spirit and them trying to figure out, what do I do with things like tongues and miracles and prophecy? Paul says this. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Here's what love is. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. This could feel heavy for just a second, but something some of you know is I've gone through a divorce in my life, and this scripture was key for me for two reasons. One, I had to examine because I was feeling all kinds of inclinations of how to respond. And I had to look at this and go, will I submit to this even when I'm feeling all this stuff? But also, it can help you discern when somebody else is treating you some way. I was able to look at this and go, this literally checks no boxes of love. I can call it wrong. And that's helpful in a time of trial when everything seems to be kind of like out of control and it's hard to discern what's happening. You can look at something like this and say, love has been defined for me. It's really, really helpful. You can see here, too, the Holy Spirit is most engaged, not just with the supernatural phenomena, and I really don't want to discount that, but I don't want this to be a sermon on that, because I think the big aim of the Holy Spirit is forming us into the image of Jesus and forming us according to the characteristics of God, which are the fruit of the Spirit, and forming us into the image of our loving Father and preparing us for eternity with God. So the Holy Spirit is God's Spirit. We need to discern the Spirit of God from the spirit of evil and from our own desires, and the Bible will point us in the right direction. I'm going to land on this, operating in the Spirit. I believe, essentially what I'm saying here, if you lean into seeking who God is in the Bible, if you seek him in his church with other believers, that is going to be very helpful. If you are praying together, that is going to be helpful very helpful, and anchoring your souls in the gospel. If you do these things, you will walk in the Spirit. You will. That's what will happen. That will be the result. I'm not against things like speaking in tongues or miracles. I just don't think that is the big aim. It's being formed into the image of Christ, walking with him, knowing him, and you will walk with the Holy Spirit. I want to show you just briefly 
that even these incredible moments are still about the same thing. Um, this is a little anecdotal, but my mom and I had a former youth pastor both shared experiences to me that even when I was younger, I went, now that makes some sense. The first, those, these both have to do with speaking in other languages. My mom tells a story of she went to a, a gathering when she was younger um, in a Native American church, and they were, they were gathered together and speaking, and my mom felt compelled to say something and spoke in what she thought was English, but they heard it in their language. That's interesting. Um, my youth pastor's father was doing a similar thing. He was, he'd gone somewhere to preach and actually had a translator, but the translator was struggling uh, to, to keep up with him. And he didn't know that. And the translator stopped talking after a while, and he looked over, and he said, what's going on? And he said, you're speaking the language. Okay. The interesting thing, in both of those situations, they were telling people about Jesus. Now, that sounds wild and crazy. It can, right? But if, if God is God and created everything, hovered over the face of the deep and created all things, and wants people to know about what he's done through Jesus, that wouldn't be that difficult to pull off for God. And it makes sense to me that God might do something like that, right? Um, the interesting thing in, in our text in Acts the end of it, if you remember back to what Josh was reading, it was all just about the work of Jesus. God told us this was going to happen through the prophet Joel. This man, Jesus, who you crucified, he has been raised. He's offering salvation in his name. I mean, this is, it ends up being just all about Jesus. That's the end result of this powerful work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, missionaries often tell stories of spiritual encounters and, and uh, miracles I remembered we had this book on the shelf, Mission, Mission Possible, and in here, you've got this lady, Marilyn, Marilyn Laszlo, and she does not come across as like, she's the most charismatic person in the world. Well, there's, there's this moment, and I, I believe, I read this book years ago, but she was saying that she didn't even see the possibility. It was one of the tribes people in this uh, remote tribe that she was with, but there was a, a fire moving toward the city, and the, the tribesmen who had come to faith in Jesus said, pray for God to change the wind. And she was like, uh, no, we just got to get everybody out. And he starts to pray, and the wind changes, and the fire moves the other direction, right? And she says, this was the moment when the people of the town went, this is, this is God. Could God do that? Sure. But it opens the door to knowing who God is and to Jesus. And so often, unfortunately, I think we want things like tongues and miracles to help ourselves feel secure or to feel like we're real Christians or to feel like God cares about us. And that, it is a wonderful thing to know that you're a real Christian and that God cares about you. But that isn't the big aim of the Holy Spirit's work is to give you that incredible, over-the-top, impossible thing so that you can have that little gift. It's about sharing who Jesus is with the world. Now, so that's the, I'm saying those things are not illegitimate, but also they're not just kind of little useful things for us. They're big realities. But then I want to share that often, just like I said with the temptations, walking in the Spirit doesn't have to be this like elaborate, 
It can be very basic. Another experience of mine recently, I told you guys, I've actually told this story here before, but not in this context. Um, last year, I went to Boston to help my buddy move. Um, he, was, he was moving to go to college. And if you know me, there's one thing that's going to get me to put in a lot of extra effort, and that is a baseball game, especially in a ballpark I have never been to, especially in the most historic ballpark remaining in the country, Fenway Park, okay? And so he is moving to Boston. Um, I did want to help him. There was a game at Fenway when we would be there. I did look into that. I was interested in all of it, and yeah, so... I went, right? And thank you, Michaela, for letting me go. That was very nice. Um, I'm sitting on the plane. This is a guy who I, I was his youth pastor. I had spent years walking through like deep things of faith with this guy. I'm sitting on the plane and I'm going, oh, what's my motivation? Like, do I, do I, like, do I really care about how he's doing? Do I really want to help him move? right? And I'm dealing with the same kind of thing with that motivation page where I'm like, why is this plaguing me? Why is this so heavy on my mind? So I laid my hands open like this in the plane, very subtly. And I said, God, what do you want with this time? What do you want me to do? What, what would you like to be said? Like, would you guide me by your spirit? And it was a powerful trip. We did go to the game in Boston and another one in Baltimore, right? <laughs> Sick. But the, after the game, the Baltimore game, he just opens up and just says, he says it's about some random thing, but he says, I just don't know how that aligns with what the gospel preaches. I don't even know if this guy's in church or anything. And I said, so you're thinking about the gospel? And we went down this incredible line of thought and I got to encourage him to the level where I realized he is like, he's crying. This, like, but in a meaning, I've never even seen him engaging with God this deeply. It was incredible. And then the last night before I left, I had one of those wake up moments, another one, right? Which now I'm up to like three in my entire life. Um, but I woke up and it was like the clearest sense it was pray over him. Like, okay. And we woke up early. It was raining outside. We're standing on his porch. I'm waiting for the Uber. And I said, uh, God told me to pray over you. And he just said, I love that. And I just put my hands on him and asked, just, it felt like there were specific things to say. It was amazing, right? This is not because I'm such a spiritual dude. I am as nervous about doing stuff like that as any of you. I just want to like clarify this. None of this is just like the mode I'm in because I'm a pastor. I am a guy that goes out in the world and says, even if I tell this person I'm a Christian, it's going to get awkward. I know that, okay? I know that. I feel the same thing as you feel. I'm saying the difference was the moment of saying, God, what do you want me to do? Lead me by your spirit. That's the difference. And all of us can do that, okay? Here's our final tool, and it's the table that Jesus has given us. Because here at the table, Jesus ministers to us, 
and gives us everything that we're hoping that the Spirit will give us, right? We want to be assured in our faith. Well, Jesus here says, this is my body. It's broken for you. This is my blood. It's been shed for the forgiveness of many. We want to see miraculous power. This is the declaration we as a church have been given where we proclaim that Jesus not only died, but that he rose again and actually ministers to us in an ongoing way. This, like, that's the miracle of all miracles. Somebody talking in another language, that's nothing compared to resurrection from the dead, okay? The amazing thing that Peter said when those people heard them speaking in the other languages was he told them that, that the prophet Joel had talked about these miraculous things that were going to happen, and then he said, in the life of Jesus, he did miraculous signs. He went throughout the world. He healed. He brought this powerful message from God. And then he did the most conclusive miracle of all time. He rose from the dead. And when he was leaving, he told us he was going to give us his spirit. He didn't say there were any more hoops you had to jump through. He didn't say you had to be any more righteous. He just said, I'm giving it to you. I will be with you always. So here at the table is where we Christians come back to Jesus and just thank him for the amazing, powerful things that he's done. Receive what he's done for us. And then all we have to do to live out of the power of the Spirit is just ask. He'll guide us. Let's pray. I should say, I'm supposed to explain this. We're going to pray, and we're going to have a time of two minutes of silence. I always forget this part because it could be weird if you're new. Um, like, why are we sitting here quietly? So we're going to take two minutes of silence. This is a time of confession and reflection just to sit before God and to, to just say, what do I do with this? Or even to confess a, a, a sin that might be in your life. Um, or just to, just to thank him for something. Whatever you need it for, it's two minutes for you. Um, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Mike is going to come up and start music, and then I will be um, handing out the Lord's Supper to, to all of us. Uh, giving is in the back, and our final act of worship is dinner, um, where we eat together and uh, spend time connecting with each other. So that's what's coming up. So with that in mind, let's pray. Father, you are, you are good. The scriptures tell us that you are powerful and good and loving and just and merciful. Um, you give us these tools to discern what is right and what is wrong. In uncertain times when the world is in chaos and we are afraid, you tell us that you're with us always, but also we can judge between good and evil by the power of your spirit. And we thank you because we need that so desperately. And I pray that as we sit before you, um, you would either open our eyes to see you for who you are or that you would encourage our faith, that you would minister to us by your spirit. And I pray that as we confess before you that we would find you to be what you are, merciful, present, ready to forgive, longing to be reconciled because you love us. So lead us now as we pray in Jesus' name.